Our sermon text this morning is from Daniel 9, uh, verses 1 through 23, and you can find it on page 435 in your paper Bibles. Daniel 9, page 435. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, was made a king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who keep, love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belong righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, to all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice, and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, and we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate, O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because of your city and your people were called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin, 
and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God, for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Peter. You can be seated. Today, I am really grateful for God's providence, because in his providence, uh, I think today we have gotten a passage that we really need to hear. Um, This is a passage about Daniel's prayer. It's Daniel's prayer for his people during a time of of great uncertainty. And I think we can relate to that today. Uh, This week, the election of Donald Trump and the response that has followed it has been unlike anything that I've ever seen. Um, I know we've had uh, elections before that were close. Um, I know that we've had contentious elections before. I know that we've had elections before where people have been shocked by the outcome. Uh, but, but this one seems different, doesn't it? Uh, this, this election seems to have impacted people beyond mere politics. Uh, it seems to have, have hit a nerve in our community. It seems to have exposed uh, this tense divide that exists in our nation that's get, gotten aggravated so many times before in the last couple of years. Um, it's, it's not simply about ideology. It's not simply about politics, but it's, it's a divide on the basic way we view the world, the basic way we understand the world around us. And I think the outcome of this election, I know the outcome of this election, has left a huge portion of our population feeling marginalized, feeling confused, and some of them even feel betrayed by the outcome. Um, and before you get too nervous, I don't, I don't really have the intention of preaching a, a political sermon this morning. You know, uh, this, the truth is this topic kind of terrifies me because I know that, that whenever I start to talk about politics, there are, are so many landmines that I could potentially step on. And if I, I set one of them off, uh, if I set one of yours off, then you're not going to hear anything else that I have to say today. Today, I really want uh, to talk about the gospel. <laughs> I want to talk about Jesus, um, but it's going to be impossible for us to look at this text, this text that is about Daniel confessing the sins of his people during a time of political upheaval without me addressing our current situation. So before I get into the text, before we start the, the sermon outright, I just kind of want to set up a framework that I hope might diffuse some of that tension. I hope it might help us to understand how I, th- I think we as the church should view the outcome of this election. And a lot of these thoughts aren't mine. They came from my friend Duke Kwan, who uh, is a pastor in Washington, D.C., but he, he posted this, and it was really helpful for me. And he said, this, this, our way of processing this kind of revolves around two main ideas. Uh, the first is, it is not a sin to have voted for any of the candidates that were on the ballot last Tuesday. There were Christians who went to the polls and voted for all the different candidates on that list with what they assumed were good moral reasons for doing so. And for that reason, 
We can't simply assume uh, in our country that just because someone voted for Donald Trump that they are racist or that they are xenophobic or that they are a misogynist. That's point one. Point two, on the other hand, there is a degree of corporate complicity with the moral outcomes of our vote. What I mean by that is when we vote, we are responsible in some way for what comes about afterwards. And so for that reason, when people found out the breakdowns of who voted for who and they saw that the church almost unanimously voted for Donald Trump, it was appropriate for them to say and feel that the church had enabled racism and misogyny and xenophobia. Again, if it had been the other way around, if the church had unanimously voted for Hillary Clinton, we'd, we'd be just as responsible for the moral outcomes of that decision. But it doesn't change the fact that we, we bear some responsibility here. So here's what my friend Duke observed about this. He said, we need to keep in mind a couple of things. First of all, there were a lot of evangelical Christians who supported Donald Trump. And generally, those Christians only have point number one in mind, which is, I'm not a racist, I don't do racist things, and so they cannot comprehend point number two, that there's some kind of corporate responsibility there. On the other hand, people who did not vote for Donald Trump, who are fearful today, who are genuinely hurt and angered by the outcome, they generally think along the lines of point number two, that there is some corporate responsibility, that, that the church is guilty as a whole. And because of that, they are at risk of blaming each individual Christian for that wrongdoing. All right, so all that to say, this is the conclusion, this is the thing that we're going to start with today before we get into this text. we got to hold those things in tension. We have to hold point number one and point number two in tension, that it wasn't a sin to vote for who you voted for, but there is some corporate ownership of the results by the church at large. Duke says that, that when we do this, we guarantee that we're going to be misunderstood and that we're going to be attacked by people both on the left and on the right. <laughs> and so you can see why I'm nervous here. <laughs> you can see why I don't really want to have to get into this stuff, but we have to. So with that in mind, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's look at our text and let's ask the question, how should God's people respond in this time of uncertainty? And I think there's three things we find in our test. We need to respond by saturating our lives with the truth. We need to respond by repentant prayer. And we need to respond by listening to God's reply. We need to respond by saturating our lives with the truth, by repentant prayer, and by listening to God's reply. So let's, let's look at this text. Verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, my descendant, Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Okay, so our passage, it opens up in the first year of King Darius. Uh, Daniel, at this point in his life, is an old man. And the nation that he has always served in, the nation that he has, has 
lived in his adult, his entire adult life has now been taken over and overthrown, and there is a new kingdom in power. It is a time of upheaval. It is a time of uncertainty. It is a time of change. And we know from the studies that we've had in this book uh, the other weeks during the fall that Daniel is a man of prayer, that he prays often, and that he prays regularly. But we find out here in this passage that that Daniel is also a man of the word, that he studies God's word. And here, it tells us he's reading the words of the prophet Jeremiah. Likely, he was reading Jeremiah 25 or Jeremiah 29, and he came across these words. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and I will bring you back to this place, to Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I've sent you into exile. So just a reminder, this is during the period of exile. So this is during the period around 600 B.C. when all the residents of Jerusalem were conquered by the nation of Babylon. They were captured and they were taken hundreds of miles away to live in this enemy land. That's the context that Daniel lived his entire life. And as Daniel was reading Jeremiah, as he heard about these 70 years, he realized, how long have I been here? (laughs) I'm getting pretty old. I think these 70 years have almost passed. And as he read it, he responds, and it says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, verse 3, seeking him by prayer, with pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, I prayed to the Lord my God and made my confession. Daniel reads these words, and he repents. He realizes that this exile that all of the Israelites were experiencing was a result of their sin, and it drives him to repentant prayer. But before we talk about that, before we get any further with his prayer, let me just ask you a simple question. What is the authority in your life? What or who is able to tell you that you're wrong? Or let me ask it this way. What do you know is true? What do you know to be true? That's something we need to think about today. That's something that we need to process, especially today. Today when we have access to more thoughts and more opinions than anyone else in the history of the world, right? We are subject to experts who weigh on weigh in on every single topic, right? We're, we're also subject to some people who, well, let's just say, you know, they're, they're not quite experts who, who weigh in on every single subject. We're constantly being inundated with people's thoughts and ideas. And I would imagine, for many of us, there is rarely a moment when we are free from input. Whether it's movies or books or podcasts or social media, We live in a society where 
someone else's thoughts are almost always passing through our minds. Someone else's thoughts are almost always shaping our worldview. So what do you filter that against? Who gets the final say? How do you decide what's right and what's wrong? What do you know to be true? Most people today don't really have an answer for that question. Maybe they would tell you they've got some kind of sophisticated process. Maybe they'll say, well, you know, I I try to discern what I hear and and find out what's true for me. You know, maybe they, they say, well, I just go with what best reflects my system of values that I've built. But let's be honest. How is that any different from from just saying, well, I go with what I feel in my feeler, you know? Whatever whatever just feels, that's, that's what I go with. Most people today, that's how we act, right? We are our own final authority. Ultimately, we're the ones who call the shots, right? We are the final deciders of truth. And maybe that seems fine to you. I think a lot of times that does seem fine. What's true for me? What's true for you? It seems fine until our different truths come into conflict, right? We've seen that play out a lot this week, haven't we? I've seen it (laughs) hundreds of times this week. You know, you have one group of people in our society saying that they are genuinely hurt, that they have been systemically and habitually mistreated by our country because of their race, because of their religion, because of their gender. And then on the other hand, there's there's another group of people saying, that's not true. You guys are sore losers. (laughs) You guys are, you're too sensitive. Get with the program. A world with with my truth and your truth, it seems fine until somebody's got to be wrong. And then what do you do? Well, then you need truth. You need real truth. You need truth with a capital T. You need an authority that can tell you you're wrong here. And that is where the claims of the scriptures fly in the face of all of our modern instincts. The Bible says it is the truth. The Bible says it is the word of truth that has been Breathed out by God. You remember 2 Timothy? It says, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The Bible claims something unique. It claims to be the truth. It claims to be the sole reliable word in a world of noisy opinions. The Bible says it's truth, but the the hard part about truth is it's not always pleasant, right? Timothy, Timothy, it says the word, it's it's useful for teaching, it's it's useful for training, but it also says what? It's for reproof. It's for rebuke. Real truth doesn't always make us comfortable. Real truth won't always seem agreeable to us. Because truth, by definition, exposes lies. Truth, by definition, it forces us to deal not with the way we think things are, but with the way things really are. 
And that's exactly what's happening for Daniel right here. He came to the word, and he knew that it was truth, and it told him a hard one. The word of God told Daniel that he was wrong. It told him that he was in sin. And that led Daniel to repent. So what about the church? What about those of you in the room today who would say you are Christians? I want to ask, do you think that that you're any different from the rest of the world? Are you like Daniel? Are you willing to treat God's word as the authority in your life? Or are you the source of your own truth? Are you open to God exposing your misperceptions, leading you to change? Or do you dismiss the scriptures when it disagrees with you? Do you dismiss the scripture when it says a hard thing? Do you explain those parts away and say, well, they don't really mean what what they say they mean? Are you willing to let that happen? Well, the truth is there's only one way that can happen for us, right? There's only one way truth can correct us. We got to find out what the truth is. <laughs> we got to expose ourselves to the truth. We got we have to find out what's actually in it. We have to give it the opportunity to to teach us and to train us, to rebuke us. Maybe one of the reasons why this passage seems unusual to us is because we rarely have experiences like this. We rarely give the Word of God the opportunity to shape us, to rebuke us, to train us. Honestly, I think if we gave Scripture one-tenth of the amount of attention that we gave to, to YouTube or Netflix or our podcast app, we would have a lot more experiences like this. And in a world that is as divided as ours is today, in a time of uncertainty, a time of change, a time when we are drowning in other people's opinions. We desperately need to respond by saturating our lives with the truth of God's word. That means we need to be present in the church. We need to hear the word of God preached. And that means that we need to open up our Bibles on our own and let the word of God transform us and change us. That's the first thing. We also need to respond in repentant prayer. When Daniel read these words of Jeremiah, it cut him to the heart. And if you get a chance to go this week and study verses 4 through 19, you read this prayer, you'll see this is one of the most amazing examples of prayer, especially repentant prayer, that you will find anywhere in the Bible. Daniel is full of sorrow. He is so desperate to communicate his guilt before God It's like he uses every single word you could possibly think of. Did you notice that when Manny was reading it? He he confesses sin, wrongdoing, transgression, wicked actions, rebellion, turning aside, not listening to or obeying God's commands. He confesses committing treachery against God, all in this one page. But if you've been with us this week, if you've been with us this month, if you've been with us as we've read through this book, that might confuse you a little bit, right? We've read all these stories of Daniel, and what has his life been like? 
pretty good guy, right? You might be wondering, when did Daniel do all of these things? We've read, what, eight chapters so far? And we haven't seen him compromise even a little bit. So what's Daniel talking about? What is Daniel so upset about? Why is he so uh, repentant and so remorseful? Well, it's because Daniel grasps something here that the church, I think, has almost entirely lost today. Daniel sees something here that, that we have almost completely forgotten. Daniel knows the corporate identity of the people of God. Daniel knows that we belong to one another. And our, our, our world today is it's extremely individualistic, right? Our, our world today, we, we live with a consumer mentality. And those things have a huge impact in the way that we relate to the church. We're used to doing everything individually, right? We, we watch the shows we want to watch when we want to watch them, right? We don't wait till the networks tell us it's time for them to come on. We read the news that conforms to our perspective. We choose our channels of information. Heck, we even have invented little tiny cups of coffee <laughs> that we can make just one for ourselves so we don't have to share it with anybody else. We can pick the style we want, right? We live as individuals. But the Bible never envisions an individual follower of God. When Peter is describing our salvation, this is how he describes it. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In the Bible, the plan of salvation does not climax with me and Jesus off on our own. It's not me and Jesus going on prayer walks through the woods, you know, having picnics together, loving each other, being buddies, right? That's, that's not what the Bible is about. Christ died for a people. And when we follow him, our identity changes. When we follow Jesus, we become a part of the people for whom Christ died. Now, Paul says, he describes it this way. He says that Christians, we're like stones. We're like stones that are being built together into a dwelling place for God, that we're leaning on each other, that we're providing stability for one another. He says that if we want to see Jesus, then we need each other. It's together. Together is the vision of the church. Together we embody Christ. Together we put him on display for the world. It's not just you, and you, and you, but it's we. It's us. But our brains, we, we just can't think that way. Not in the world of, of shopping malls, not in the world of Amazon.com. We are used to, to coming to everything as consumers. We come and we, we take the things we like. We leave the things we don't like. We come when it's convenient for our schedules. We interact with other people on our own terms. We show them parts of ourselves, but not all of ourselves. We come here as individuals who sit in a room full of individuals. When we come, we're asking, what can this place give me? 
What can I get? Is this serving me well? And we rarely see the church as a house, a church as a, a, a temple for God that we are building together that needs us to be a part of it. We see ourselves as individuals, but God doesn't see it that way. God doesn't see you that way. And you know who else doesn't see you that way? The rest of the world. Right now, the weakest and the most marginalized people in our nation are looking at the church. And they're saying, I'm not welcome there. Those people don't want me. They don't care about me. And how do we respond to that accusation? Well, of course, we respond as individuals. We say, well, I didn't do that. <laughs> that's not me. That's, that's not our church. We're, we're one of the good guys, right? It's those other so-called Christians, those ones in the South especially. <laughs> it's those guys. We're doing a refugee coat drive. <laughs> we have people from, from different races and classes leading our church. It's not us. I don't act that way. I got a safety pen on my shirt. But Daniel knew better. Daniel looked at the sin of his people, and he knew that was his sin too. He may have prayed three times a day. He may have refused to defile himself with the king's food. He may have been so faithful to God that it got him thrown into a den of lions to be killed. But he knew that he belonged to a people and those people were guilty of sin. He knew that the people of God as a whole needed to repent. So do we. Now look, I know we're talking politics this morning. It's kind of surrounding everything these days. And I want to remind you again that, that I'm not saying it is a sin whether you voted Republican or Democrat. But I'm saying the sin we need to repent of is the exact same sin that put Israel into exile. It was their sin of idol worship. They started serving the other gods that everybody else served, and they lost their distinction. God, his plan, from the moment he called Abraham, was to build a people for himself. A people whose faithfulness would be a light to the nations. His plan was that, that, that as the people of God followed him, it would reach the ends of the earth and people would be drawn to him. But by the time Babylon rolled into Jerusalem, you couldn't tell anybody apart. They worshipped the same gods. They lived the same lives. They looked just like the world around them. And this week, right now, People are turning away from the church for the exact same reasons. We are just as political. We are just as divided. We are just as angry. Daniel, when he prays, he says, your people have become a byword among all who are around us. How different is that? from the way people perceive the church today. 
together. Together. We, the church, the church with a capital C, have obscured the grace of God. And we need to pray. More than we need to fix it. More than we need to dialogue about it. More than we need to come up with some kind of solution. We need to pray. We need to come before a merciful God and ask Him to forgive us. To forgive us for living like individuals. Living like the problems belong to to always somebody else. To forgive us for, as a church, ignoring the wounds of the marginalized. Minimizing their pain and spiritualizing it by telling them, well, God's in control, everything's going to be okay. You shouldn't be worried. We need to repent. (laughs) We need to repent for, for obscuring the gospel in the ways that we have conformed to the world. In this time of division, in this time of uncertainty, we need to let the truth of God tell us some hard things and repent. We need to repent of the sin that we all own together. Finally, we need to listen for God's reply. I don't know how you're feeling this week. Maybe worse now. <laughs> I, you think it's obvious. I'm feeling pretty weighed down by this stuff. You know, I, I had a totally different sermon I wanted to preach on this text when I first came to it. But that was Monday. <laughs> Since then, I've, I've been online and I'm reading the, the words of my friends who are, are really hurting, who are really angry. And then I'm, I'm reading the words of my other friends <laughs> who seem to have no concern or, or maybe just no awareness. I, I really don't know. I'm not sure what's going on. But it's left me feeling so burdened for the church. Maybe you're there with me this morning. I hope some of you were there with me. But before we, we wrap this up, I just want to call you back to the good news. <laughs> before we go home, I want to, to remind you of something that is true with a capital T. You know, the problem many of us have with prayer, especially this, this urge, you know, as I'm telling you to pray and to repent, the reason so many of us won't go do that is because we feel like there's silence on the other end. Daniel, when he prays, he says, Therefore, O God, listen to our prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear to hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas to you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not. For your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. And the text tells us in verse 23 that before he could even finish, Gabriel shows up. An angel comes to him and he says, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out and I have come to tell it to you for you are greatly loved. Man, wouldn't that be great? (laughs) Wouldn't it be awesome if I could just stop preaching right now and just pray for our church and pray for our community and an angel would show up and say, Christ the King, I've heard your prayers and I'm just coming to let you know that you are greatly loved. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be awesome when you're at home 
confessing your own sins, if, if an angel would come and say, you are greatly loved. Wow. Well, let me proclaim some good news today. Let me tell you something that's true in the, in the midst of a confusing time. The gospel tells us that our God has responded. The gospel tells us that our God has answered our cries with a far better messenger than Gabriel. That he's responded by sending his son. And his son came and he didn't just say, you're greatly loved, but he proved it to us. He showed it to us. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but that through the world we might be saved through him. On the cross, Jesus suffered and he died for the sins of his church. Ephesians says he gave himself up for her so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. When he was talking to Peter, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Folks, if we get to bear the burden of our corporate guilt today, we also get to bear the joy of our corporate blessing. So today, I think that's just where we need to end up. I want to call us all, together, we, I want to call us back to the truth this morning. I want to invite you this week to saturate your lives with it, to remember that you're greatly loved, to tell it to yourself and tell it to the person sitting next to you. And I want to invite you to come to the Father in humility, to come to Him in repentance. You know, maybe the thing that you need to repent of this morning is your desire to live as an individual. Maybe, maybe for the first time, some of you here need to surrender your life to some authority that's greater than your own. Maybe you need to come to that saving authority of Christ Jesus. And if you're a Christian here, then all of us need to repent. We need to repent of the ways the church has lost its distinction from the world. And we need to repent of the corporate blame that we bear today for racism, for the xenophobia, for the misogyny that are taking place in our country. And as we do it, let's rest in the truth that despite our failings, despite our sin, despite the things that we have done to obscure the gospel, the gates of hell won't prevail. God has proclaimed to us once and for all, you are greatly loved. Oh, Lord, this is a tough one. <laughs> and I'm grateful that you have given us a word that speaks truth. Father, I'm grateful that you have proclaimed to us a gospel that meets us in our failings. Father, would you meet us here today? Would you pour out your spirit on us? Would you change us and transform us? Would you let us see what we have done? And turn. 
Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.